Well, hello, everybody. Uh, Ranger Gord, welcome back to uh, the Radio KBPV podcast. Today, we have got something a little bit different. Um, it's, this is going to be a uh, broadcast covering our Authors' Night from November 22nd. So this is actually on uh, dropping on November 26th. So, uh, yeah, we've actually was able to edit this and get it back together to you and uh, within four days. So um, what this was, this was an experiment. Um, for those of you who don't know, Kootenai Brown, every November, holds this uh, author's night. And it's just a, basically a, a chance for local authors, of which there are many in Pincher Creek, Lethbridge, and Southwest Alberta, to come on out and just show the public their face and uh, to chat b about their books and uh, for a chance for the public also to come in and get signed copies and chance for writers to just talk to each other because it's a it's a small community and uh, but not it's just a good chance to get to know each other uh, each other so we had our like as I've said we've had our last one here on Friday night and uh, Beth Toe who's one of our authors, the author of Greater Waterton, or Bert Riggle's Greater Waterton, rather, uh, came up with an idea that uh, perhaps we should uh, intermingle with each other and just uh, promote ourselves while at this uh, event with a bit of a, a short bit of readings. So this came on rather quickly, and I didn't have a PA system handy. It was at the other set... Uh, side of the village site but I did have a school PA system a small uh, megaphone one of those uh, things that you might see a a policeman uh, read the riot act with so we got this out and I whipped out uh, my podcast recorder at the same time so and we went around the tables and gave every one of our 23 authors a chance to promote themselves so that's a fairly big event. It also meant that it was a bit of a bear to edit as well. Uh, not because of the authors themselves, but just because of the uh, my own technical uh, encumbrances in juggling both the podcast recorder and with the megaphone from going from uh, table to table and to uh, uh, author to author, as it were. But uh, the Zoom recorder seems to work really, really well. Uh, the megaphone, well, not so much. So uh, we've learned a lot from this experiment, and hopefully my authors will be back again next year, and we'll come up with a little bit different format to do this, uh, perhaps in uh, separate rooms or something like that. But in the meantime, I'm not going to jazz this up with any, too much more music because it's uh, a fairly lengthy podcast as it is. So I don't think I've ever... Uh, put together or edited a podcast quite as long as this one. So, hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm recording. I'm going to introduce what we're doing. If you could hold that for a, if you could hold that for a second for me, we'll introduce what we're doing. We're here at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. It's November 22nd, 2019. And we are at the Meet the Authors Night. I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village for the fifth annual Authors Night. Uh, my name is Ranger Gordon. Beside me is Beth Toe. And hey, everybody, you're supposed to clap. Yay! There we go. Okay, we, we're authors. We like to hear ourselves be clapped at. Okay, so what we're going to do here is something we haven't done before is uh, we're going to talk about ourselves. Yeah, like authors have never talked about themselves. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're just going to give every author a few seconds to walk and walk around the tables. And uh, Beth, we're going to start with Bev and go to Francis, and then we'll, we'll get around the whole system here. And just give you a few seconds to uh, to plug your book, what it is you do, and if you get out of hand, Beth ha Bev ha Beth has a yes. When you hear that, you have been sent to the island. 
So we're going to start with Beth because it's her idea. So I'm going to hand each one of you this mic and we will uh, hold this megaphone. And... Yeah, okay. Thank you, everyone. It's nice to be at the Kootenai Brown Museum. I'd like to read a section of our book. I'd like to read a section of our book, Burt Riggle's Greater Waterton, uh, that was uh, is on our table. Fantastic historic photographs about a caption from one of the photographs, which my incredible sidekick, Myrna Marty, is holding up for your review. This particular photo is in the book, and here is its captions. This is a picture of Myrna. You should be able to. <laughs> Thanks. Good job. This is a picture of Avion Ridge, and this historic, notorious trail from Burt Riggle. It goes, with nerves of steel, the guests and horses traveled the long, narrow Avion Shale Trail. All the qualities of a good string of horses were critical here, especially when stopping for a photograph. Horses can become nervous unless well-seasoned. Colts, too, were included in the, in the group so they can learn the ways of the high country. Why, riders, too, found the Avion Ridge a chilling ride. Miriam Bennett describes her experience in 1921 on her honeymoon. Russell, my husband and his father and brothers and friends, had camped often with Bert Regal. To me, the whole country was new. I had grown up in Matthews County, Virginia, where the altitude was not more than 24 feet. And here I was, up at 8,000 feet, riding a horse. The first day, they took me over Yarrow Creek Divide. Bert led the procession. My new husband came next, then 35 horses in front of me, and then me. The sharp-edged ridge was so narrow, the rocks were flowing away from the horse's hooves and rolling down to the bottom of the earth, first one side, then the other. I was almost sick with fright. To this day, I never want to return to Yarrow Creek Divide. <laughs> Yay. Jingle, jingle, jingle. OK, we'll be making ourselves. We'll be making our way around. And uh, for our guests who are just coming in from the parade, feel free to mingle, look at the books. We're just doing a little bit of self-promotion here. Bev, can I just get you to maybe come with me and hold this? I've got a little bit too much to hold here. Next up, um, I'm going to hand the mic to Francis Riviere. And Francis is one of our Métis elders from this area and an accomplished author. So just push the red button there. I'm going to read a little bit of my very last book that I wrote here, which is a book of short stories. I wrote this uh, book since I've been in the, uh, in the lodge up at Crestview. And uh, it's, uh, it's a book of short stories. Uh, horses supplied comfortable sleeping quarters, gourmet meals, and wonderful vistas like none else in the world boasted the brochures. We dreamed of sleeping around camp, resting after long, rewarding scenic rides, waiting for the amiable cook to prepare a stunning meal, sitting around a campfire until we were pleasantly tired and ready for the warm sleeping bags, snuggled in rainproof tents, be on the, uh, maybe even on a bed of fragrant spruce browse. We couldn't wait to meet the wonderful man. Where was the welcoming party? Why were the only humans in the clearing members of our own party? We were a, a group of amateur photographers, except for Darwin Wiggett, who was to show us the finer points of using cameras and tripods to photograph the breathtaking scenery, flora and fauna of the Wilmore Wilderness. Darwin Wiggett was from Leduc, Alberta. Jeanette Buckingham, her partner, Hans Wiener from uh, Edmonton. My friend Edith Evans, a rancher from Fort McLeod, and myself a rancher also. The Wilmer Wilderness was located west of Edmonton on the Yellowhead Highway, north of Jasper Park in central Alberta. 
Darwin was an experienced photographer who experienced several exploits with Dave Manser, the outfitter, in previous years. He spoke favorably of these experiences. Darwin was a wiry, young, outdoor young man, about 35, very friendly and easy to get acquainted with. The night before at his home, he showed us slides of the wonderful, awesome country north of Jasper Park. We went back to our, our motel room that night, thoroughly pumped and loaded with chocolate cake that Darwin's wife, although she was not present, had gen generously supplied. Jeanette and Hans both appeared interesting people that I was anxious to know. Jingle, 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 jingle. Yay. Okay, next we're gonna go over to Doug Rowling. And I don't think I have to show Doug how to run the microphone. Uh, Doug is a uh, singer and songwriter and a Western author. So we'll have him talk about a little, a little bit about himself. Well, I... Uh, yeah, I've written songs for years and uh, started two or three books over the over my life that never got finished. And then I uh, I would you know find them tucked away in a drawer somewhere and then remember, oh yeah, I was writing a book. But then uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I just decided I was going to write a book and treat it like a job and finish it. And uh, the whole process was so enjoyable that I had a hard time thinking about anything practical for a while, which probably drove my wife crazy. But um, yeah, so uh, I write westerns. I am a, I work as a cowboy in the high country, looking after other people's cattle. And uh, so there should be a degree of authenticity to my writing, I think. And uh, I always put a horse from my life in each book. Um, I've had some wonderful horses over the years, so uh, not that it matters. I just make sure I stick one of those horses in, in one of my books. And uh, yeah, so they're, they're Western novels. They're not in each one standard on its own. It's not like they're in sequence or anything, but. Thank you, Doug. Next up, next up, we have Chris Morrison. And if there's anything known about Waterton that isn't known, then Chris doesn't know it. I have no idea what I just said, but Chris is going to explain that. I would never think that Gord wouldn't know everything. Nobody would. All right, I'm going to tell you a little story about a famous person in southern Alberta. His name was Jim McNally. And for those of you who don't know, he worked in Waterton. He worked as a lawyer, and then he started a brewery called Big Rock Brewery. But first, he was a reporter for the Lethbridge Herald. And one day, a bear decided it was going to come into the beer parlor, and he got the, the goods on this story. Monday evening, about 8 o'clock, business was normal in the Waterton Lakes Hotel Tavern. There was a high hum of many vendors accompanied by the clink of glasses. Outside, a big brown bear wandered up and down Main Street toward the hotel. Suddenly, and for no apparent reason, the bear broke into a lope and wheeled through the open hotel door and into the lobby. It did not panic, but charged straight into the men's section of the bar. In those days, it was a ladies' section and a men's section. Herb Chalmers, Herb Chalmers, who was drawing a beer, turned to see the bear and yelled, There he comes! Orson Weber, whose son later worked in the park, had just turned from the bar with a full tray of beer. He dropped everything and started for the ladies and escort section of the tavern, <laughs> leading a general interest uh, pardon me, leading a general retreat at the start of uh, at the startled patrons. The Bruin stopped a few feet short of the bar, climbed on the table, and sh and sat down as if waiting for service. None was forthcoming. 
He, came he became impatient and showed his indignation by taking a chunk out of the ceiling with his front paw. Ten minutes later, there was shouting and turmoil. The intruder was ushered unceremoniously out of the side door at the point of a broom. <laughs> okay, Betty Smith is, uh, was a fixture here at the museum here for many, many years. And I'm an antique. She's part of a, of a great project that came out here a few years ago where many local authors got together, and I think I'll have uh, Betty talk a little bit more about the Family Secrets Project and how that uh, came out and whatever it is she's chosen to read. Thank you. Uh, I, we published this book, Family Secrets, in 2016, so it had been in progress for about three years before that. Uh, it was an awesome experience. Tyler Trafford over there was our mentor. Uh, Judy wrote, uh, did the picture and allowed us to put it on the front of her book. Uh, Agnes Tiber has just finished her first publication after Family Secrets. We're so proud of you. B.J. Scott's here somewhere, or she was here, and I was another member, and there were 15 of us all together. Farley was there, and a person who just really encouraged us to keep going, and we met in this area for three years, writing and comparing and, and sharing stories, and Tyler would help us with them. And then he said, I think we've got enough stories for a book. And here it is. And this might be Pincher Creek's first bestseller because we published 500 copies of it, the, or printed 500 copies of it. They sold in about two months, maybe six weeks. We bought another 500 copies, and they sold in about three months. And then we got 250 more copies, and there are still a few here. So if you have not read Pincher Creek's bestseller, this is it. And I would like to read to you a poem that I wrote for it. It's called North Fork River Skating Party. And I can hardly see it here. Flickering firelight reflected on North Fork River ice. Full moon joining firelight reflection, dancing. Patches of smooth ice like mirrors. Patches of rippled ice speckled with rocks. Lanterns and logs marking danger, thin ice. Adults skating one by one, two by two. Cast shadows lengthening, shortening, disappearing, reappearing. Men playing hockey with two branches for sticks. Rocks for goalposts. Frozen horse turds for pucks. <laughs> one or two small children. Me. Bob skates with two blades strapped to my overshoes. I can't stand up. I can't skate. I want to glide, to twirl, to dance on my skates. I stand alone and watch. Two women skate up to me carrying a poplar tree branch. Hang on. They skate and I feel like I am flying. Wobbly knees and toes turned in. Feet out in front and feet stretched behind. Always the strong hands holding me as we glide, slide, break the moonlight, firelight reflection. Shadows lengthen on the ice. Breathless, proud with wide grin, glide the last few feet by myself, skating. Wonderful, Betty. Thank you. Wonderful, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. And if you, if you go out to the, uh, about an hour and a half north, or, and east of here is a place called Enchant, where the roads are really straight, and uh, the kids all grew up wearing rubber boots all summer long. And that's where Belinda Croson is from, and she's also one of Alberta's most eminent historians, and she's also a counselor, and we won't tell anybody about that, of a, of a nearby city. <laughs> so I will uh, let Belinda explain what she wants, and she's got a book out that I think is going to shock and amaze us. I like to always find the history that nobody wants you to know about. So I have written about prostitution, prohibition, gambling, and all other scandalous things. And I want to give you a quote from my book called We Don't Talk About Those Women, 
on, on prostitution in Lethbridge. Lethbridge actually had one of the largest red light districts in Western Canada. With while it was illegal, an openly recognized red light district for about 60 years. And you might wonder why, and this quote that comes from one of the early mounted police superintendents might help to explain it. This was after an event where they tried to close the red light district, and this was his response to the church ministers. If they would turn their attention to the juvenile depravity and promiscuous fornication that is going on under their own eyes and in their own congregations, they would be kept so busy that they would have no time to think of the professional ladies, who at all events are orderly, clean, and on the whole not bad looking. <laughs> Superintendent Dean, 1894. I think that explains the book better than I can. <laughs> I'm really loud, Gord, so I'm not going to need that. All right. <laughs> uh, my name is Joey Ambrosia. I work at the uh, Frank Slide Interpretive Centre, and I've worked on a number of projects there, from hiking books to comic books to a new game about coal mining. But I want to just read a little piece from a book that we reprinted and uh, did a second edition of by William Kerr, a geologist in the Crow's Nest Pass. <clears throat> so it says... Was a baby named Frankie Slide the only survivor? The most appealing and enduring myth associated with the Frank Slide is the story of Frankie Slide, a baby who lived in one of the houses that was destroyed, and how she alone somehow escaped unharmed. No one is quite sure who found her, how she was saved, or where she was found, but there's plenty of stories. It's been said that she was found on a rock, on a bale of hay, in her crib, in an attic, on a pile of debris, under the roof of a house, and in her dead mother's arms. Report, reports stated that this baby was the only survivor of the Frank Slide. Local people did not know her name, and therefore she acquired the name Frankie Slide. The story was told and retold so many times it became a legend, and a song was written about her. The truth is that there were several very young girls, as well as older children, who survived the Frank Slide. Many of the people who escaped from the row of cottages in the path of the rock slide were children, and their neighbors knew exactly who these children were. So if you want to know more about the Frank Slide, we have an excellent book on that. Wonderful. Okay, my name is Farley, and I work here at the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. I have a story that uh, is in this uh, railway history book that we have, and it is the story of one of the adventures on the Mountain Mill Trestle, which was the trestle went over the Mill Creek, and... Uh, um, and it was on the Kootenay and Alberta rail line. The line was finished in 1911 and 1912, and this is a true story that was told to me many years later by one of the seniors in the community. And that senior was Millie Cox. And when the railway was finished, she was about 18 years old, and she and her friends thought it would be a great adventure to go out onto the uh, railway and onto the trestle there and have a picnic on top of the uh, railway trestle. It thought it would be a great place to have a nice Sunday brunch and have a great view. It had a nice panoramic view up there of the mountains and it was the highest wooden railway, one of the highest wooden railway trestles in the Canadian prairies at the time. So she and about six or eight of her friends went up there, had their lunch, had their picnic, and then decided to continue on back to the Mount View Ranch east of the trestle, and they just got off the trestle when there was a runaway coal car from Beaver Mines that went whizzing by them, and, and they had just narrowly missed them because they just got off the edge of the, of the railway. And it went whizzing down, uh, downhill all the way to the Pincher Station at that point. And with the research that we did, we were able to find the picture of them on the, the railway trestle. So it uh, documented the history, not that we had to ever worry about what Millie Cox told us. When I knew her, and this was back in the late 70s, early 80s, she was just about 90 years old at that one, uh, point, and she told me this story about it. And then many years later, out of one of the family photo albums, out pops the photograph. So that's why it's important uh, in a community like Pincher Creek to listen to the seniors 
and the elders because they have lots of these stories that nobody else knows about. And if she hadn't told us about the story, it would have vanished with her as well. So. Okay, I guess I come to me now, uh, just because that's where I line up in the table. I think I'll just use my voice. I work with both children's and canons, so I have developed a very loud voice. Um, the book I will tell you about right now is called Healy's West, The Life and Times of John J. Healy. Well, who is this guy? Well, the, probably the most uh, rec uh, local thing you could probably think of is he was the builder of Fort Whoopup. But he had more than that in his life. He was also, if you're familiar with the Banff country, he was the, one of the founders of Silver City in that little con job near Banff National Park. And basically, I'm just going to read the dust jacket. So when John Healy pans for Idaho gold, descends the Missouri River, tames wild Alberta Mustangs, stares down Montana outlaws, equips Klondike prospectors, or promotes the untapped potential of Alaska, you can't help but admire this calculating bundle of Celtic dynamite, who saw borders as mere lines to cross, great distances as stepping stones, and empty prairies or icy oceans as just mere opportunities for exploration. You'll love them, you'll hate them, and you will awaken to a new understanding of an era both invigorating and brutal. Although he was never immortalized in a dime novel or a Hollywood western, John J. Healy, born 1840, died 1908, was one of the most influential figures of the westward movement. From Irish famine to army saddle, from taking on powerful monopolies to trading with the Blackfoot, from political maneuvering to hunting down rustlers behind a sheriff's badge in Montana, Healy challenged life, nature, enemies, and governments head on. In his own time, Healy was inflated to heroic myth by some, and derided by others as a controversial agent of change by others. Healy's West demonstrates that the man fits both molds. This is the most complex and truly balanced account of Healy's life ever published. An entertaining and critical portrayal of the West's most charismatic figure, Healy's West is a must-reader for any history buff. If you want to go back to this, sir. No, I'm good. I can... All right. I can holler. Uh, my name's Jay Collins. I write historical fiction, uh, period westerns. Uh, this is my latest book. It's called The Brethren Elders, and it's a bit of a controversial book. Uh, the, the initial reviews from Amazon.ca and .com have been outstanding. Um, it's a dark story, so I, I kind of like the controversy about uh, things, much like Bonnie over there. Uh, so I'm just going to read the first page of chapter one, and it'll kind of maybe set the tone as to what it could be about if you wanted to pursue it. Uh, Bishop Floyd Jennings grabbed his 12-year-old son Jacob by the back of his neck and pushed him down hard against the far wall of the horse corral. Jake got up quickly and stood there defiantly as he waited for his fate. You must be punished, boy, said Floyd as he reached for the switch. I never did nothing, Pa. Jake spoke calmly. He'd gotten used to the beatings and had learned to turn himself off to the pain. It had been several months now since he had cried out during a session. This angered his father even more, which brought on longer and more severe attacks. God has seen what you have done. Now get that shirt off your back. Floyd's eyes widened as he watched Jacob unbutton it and then slowly turn around. He stepped in closer to his son, raising his arm high. The first blow startled Buck in the next stall. He snorted and reared back a little. Jake never flinched. Another 15 lashes later, he still stood his ground, unmoving. Thank you, Jay. Okay, we're gonna move in down Murderer's Row here. And do you want the mic, or? Sure. Okay, other way, kids other way around. Because we're <laughs> You have to turn the mic around. Clear the technically deficient, too. <laughs> so my name's Tyler Trafford, and I thought I'd just tell you how I started to learn to write. I was raised by a very unusual woman, my mother. And when I was a little kid, she said, oh, you're going to have to learn to read and write. I was only three years old, and she thought that was the thing that was important. So she started me on it. When I went to school, grade one, came home the first day and I said to Alice, she liked me calling her Alice, 
said, Alice, I don't think school's for me. And she said, yeah, it's probably not, Tyler. You don't really have to go if you don't want. <laughs> so I didn't go to school for quite a while. Finally, they got me. And Alice had to take me to school, grade three. That's where I started. And she took me to school, grade three, and said, this is the last time I'm doing this, Tyler. I'm not ever coming to any school meetings. I'm not reading your report cards. You're on your own. <laughs> and I thought, well, OK, here I go. And I kind of struggled through. And one time, now there are no kids in here, is there? So one time I came home from my school, and I said, you know, Mom, this isn't really what I like doing. School's really not for me. She said, I know, but you've got to do it. And I said, well, what do you think about that? And she said, well, Tyler, it's a fuck up a life if you don't do what you want. <laughs> and that's my education. Woo! <laughs> okay, Sid. Yeah. Okay. What do I do, push the button? Just push the button and put it right up to your mouth. Okay. Hi, I'm Sid Marty, and I have some books here, uh, um, nonfiction books and poetry books, and I've been a freelance writer since 1978. Um, uh, this one's called Men for the Mountains, and uh, I got some pretty compliment, complimentary comments from a few people, including Mordecai Richler, who said uh, a tender yet unsentimental account about life in the Rockies. It makes mountain life sound so enviably rich that before you put it down, you may, like me, seriously consider dropping everything to join them out there. Toronto Star, one of the finest books ever written in our, about our vanishing wilderness, and wildlife and the compelling need to halt its wanton destruction. But aside from that, I thought I might uh, read something for you. Um, if I can find it. Hang on a sec. This is a little poem about the literary, literary life. Maybe I can do it without that thing. Uh, <laughs> it's called uh, Ballad of the Onion. At lunch, we ordered salad, serene and spare of build. She gazed upon the legumes while her water glass was filled. But she edited the onions like unwanted exclamations from the paragraphs of lettuce and the carrots' explications. She asked to see some poems. I read for her that night. The verses stripped me naked. I was blinded by her light. But she left the crowded room with a speed that seemed rehearsed. It must have been the onions stinking up the verse. <laughs> the letter came today. Her writing is so neat. Reminds me of the way she nibbles vegetables, sans meat. She sent me back my poems. Try again someday. We only use postmodern now, and rhyming is passé. I still can smell the perfume of this literary seer who condescends to smile when she prefers to sneer. Her pearly teeth, her crimson nails once pierced me to the core, but many a beast that chews a leaf has the heart of a carnivore. <laughs> Thank you. Want the mic? Uh, just your thing there. Hi, I'm Fred Stenson. Uh, I've got a few novels here that I've written over the years. Uh, this one's called Who by Fire. It's the most recent. And uh, if, um, if it helps locate this, uh, the church mentioned in this first part is St. Henry's. This is a childhood memory that I used to start this book, and everything else in the book is fiction, I swear. So bright was the light outside his window that the frost on the stippled wall was glinting. This he saw as he came awake. A deep rumble from outside had wakened him and a humming in his bedspring. He reached above his head and touched a metal flower in the bedstead. It buzzed against his finger. He slid from under the heavy tick. His feet found the hooked rug. Through his window he could see along the snow to the top of the church. Church Hill could see the cross on the steeple that his, father's, his mother's father had planted there on a windy day long ago. He wondered what could make a light at night brighter than a moon and a sound that made a house shake. God, he supposed. 
The boy heard voices. The younger of his sisters was crying and the older was scolding from their bedroom across the hall. Between his and their room was a grate in the floor to bring up heat. His father's growl and his mother's higher voice rose through it. He went to the stairs and crept down. So, thank you. I'm not hearing that sleigh bell. <laughs> Hello, excuse me. I'm Pete Brower, and I've produced a comic book which depicts the formation of the Northwest Motor Police in 1873 and coming right here to southern Alberta the following year and establishing, I think, an outpost here in 1878. I'm right, okay. Now, uh, while the recruits were, were uh, in Fort Garry, they were uh, recruiting in Fort Garry, they were allowed to skate on the Red River, and I've got them, one guy's cutting branches off a tree, like was mentioned before, for a hockey stick, and uh, the other guy says, what's this for? He says, oh yeah, before I go on, they were always complaining about these hard bre breakfast biscuits, which they had to eat. And this guy says, what's this for? He says, I brought some of those stale breakfast biscuits. We can hit them to each other across the ice. So they're playing hockey with these breakfast biscuits. And this one guy says to the other, I'm not playing anymore. He never passes the biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Megan, I think, has uh, landed here for a minute from her own... She, Megan, if you don't know, is, her own, is a chartered helicopter pilot. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, um, this is the first book that I've ever wrote, and it is all short stories from my family's um, outfitting business. My grandfather, Dave Simpson, used to outfit down here by Waterton. And then he had three sons, Frank, Flint, Stan, and a daughter, Cherokee. And Stan is my dad. This book also has trail recipes and poems from my grandma, Carol, because she went out on the trail all the time, cooking on the hunts and all of that. So I was just going to read a little bit of this one story, and it's called Cougar with a Longbow. And it's just about a hunter that was on a cougar hunt with my grandfather and my dad. My heart was pounding and my legs ached as I climbed the last few steps to where Dave Simpson stood. The wind whipped at his shredded jacket and blood ran down his face where branches had torn away at his ear. Sheba, the blue tick hound, strained at the leash and howled as a scent from the day-old track eddied upward into the warming sun. Dave smiled and said, this cougar hunting sure is easy, isn't it? About that time, Stan and Flint, Dave's sons, and the other dog, a noisy black and tan named Zeke, had picked up a track among a, among a maze of mule deer hoof prints. As we caught up to the boys, Stan pointed out some bighorn sheep a mile above us on the skyline. The country was steep and thick brush in the bottoms of the draws made the going very slow. We had been going up and down the ridges for four hours and the city boy was now paying for the soft life. Okay, we now have Agnes Tebert with her first book, her first novel, Pathway Through Peril. Uh, well, this book is uh, based on my parents' experiences uh, in Ukraine during, uh, during and after the First War and the Russian Revolution and the Civil War, and then their um, uh, immigration to Canada in, after that period of time. It is fiction. It's inspired by their story, but it, it's, a lot of it is true. A lot of it is filling in the blanks and, and um, yeah. I would like to read this a little bit. Katharina was in the kitchen preparing the midday meal for her gra three grandchildren who in the periods of turmoil and trouble were spending most of their time in their ancestral home. She was caught off guard by the band of soldiers who thundered down the peaceful tree-lined street and into her snow-covered yard. <clears throat> she heard the sound of tethered horses in the barn, the tromping of feet and loud shouts as they stormed through the passageway and into her kitchen, fragrant with the smell of chicken soup on the stove. 
She had thought of what might happen if someone broke in when she was alone in the house with her grandchildren. She had long ago decided that a bunch of poverty-stricken peasants didn't scare her. And if it was Nestor Magno, she would lay the law down to that ignorant, lawless little Russian pipsqueak. <laughs> the reality took her by surprise when it was neither peasants nor anarchists who invaded her home, but Red Army soldiers looking for a meal. There were about a dozen of them, young, cocky individuals, probably in a position of authority for the first time in their lives. Armed with a variety of weapons, ammunition jingling on their chests, their presence crowded the large kitchen and filled it with the rank smell of horse and gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry, the, the jingle has jingled. <laughs> okay, next up we have Pat Moskaluk. I'll hold it, I'll hold it. <laughs> You'll help. Okay, um, this is about now and then. The now part is, several months ago there was a news item um, about students in a Strathmore school live trapping gophers and turning them loose in the adjacent farmer's fields. <laughs> much to the chagrin of the farmers. Then, when rains were plentiful and Todd Creek flooded, the students spent time drowning gophers with buckets of water hauled from the creek. Crows, magpies, and gophers were considered vermin during those years, and the MD of Pincher Creek brought into force a program where children could bring into the school gopher tails and pairs of crow and magpie legs and be paid a set sum for that for them. This was probably the only actual cash most students ever saw. Thank you, Pat. Okay, before I turn it over to Doris, I'd probably say, unless I'm mistaken, I think Doris has the long distance record tonight for how far driven. She has all the way down from Red Deer, the weather factory of the world. So. <laughs> Thank you, Gord. Um, so I wasn't sure what I would be reading. I've got two books here, and um, I'm a historian. I spend a lot of time in the archives, and uh, for me, that's a lot of fun. And so my first book was about one of the first pioneers in Pincher Creek, uh, Mary Rose DeLorme Smith. Some of you may know her as $50 Bride. Um, and she, was, uh, she settled here in the Pincher Creek area, had 17 children, she lived till the age of 99, and she left a lot of her manuscripts at the uh, Glenbow Museum. And so I uh, went through her manuscripts, and um, I like to, as much as possible, use their words if I can. And in her case, she did leave some words. And so I was curious, you know, as we all are, about arranged marriages in those days. And they weren't all that uncommon, but we didn't often get to know a lot about how these women felt about these arranged marriages during the fur trade, and so I'm just gonna share a few of her own words about how she encountered uh, this husband on, on the trail. He was uh, 17 years older than her. Her mother uh, made this deal with, with uh, her to become his wife, um, with Charlie for, for Mary Rose to become his wife. And so this is, these are Mary Rose's own words. Uh, she says, in, in a stirring excerpt worth quoting in its entirety since it sheds light on the practice of arranged marriages in some Aboriginal societies, Mary Rose explained Charlie's, quote, proposal. And so these are her words. As we neared the house, the three of us hurried real fast, and then Charlie caught hold of me, saying something. I was so frightened, I knew not what his words were, but just cried out, yes, yes, let me go. Whereupon he kissed me and loosed his hold. I ran like a wild antelope trying to catch up with my sister and brother before they entered the house. I was still trembling with fear as we entered the door, for we girls were not allowed alone with men. Oh, say mother, I cried, you know that white man. He grabbed me and began to talk, but first he kissed me. So ended my courting days. <laughs> that's, that's good enough. Thank you, Doris. So now we have Krista McDonald from the Crow's Nest Pass, who's got her first two novels here tonight. Right up. I'm pretty, I'm pretty loud. I'm pretty can. loud. I think I'll be all right. Um, and I stand when I talk. It's the teaching. 
Um, so I write uh, realistic women's literature. Uh, so it's literary fiction, but focused on women's uh, identities and relationships. Um, definitely fiction. My first book follows a woman throughout her life. And the second book is One Single Day of a Woman's Life in 1969. And uh, it, that's what I'm going to read from today. And I'm going to read just uh, about a page from um, not chapter one, because that would make sense. I'm going to start with chapter two, which is at 6 AM. Sharon watched the shadow slide across the tiled ceiling, dancing with the light filtering through the curtains. She did the calculations. If she fell asleep right this moment, she would still get another 60 minutes. Well, 59 minutes, 45 seconds, 44 seconds, 43 seconds. Albert snored, sighed, and rolled his head away from her. 58 minutes. Or she could get up, go dig out the pamphlets she had tucked into the hallway closet, and study. She hadn't flipped through the notebook and pamphlets in weeks, maybe months, if she was entirely honest. The last time she had, she fanned through the pages, opening to one, then the other, but never reading, never even considering the images and diagrams and captions, not even the headings. There was the one with the smiling woman, sorry. There was the one with the smiling woman on the cover, her white dress and white cap starched and bleached to the color of snow and innocence and the pearls wore, that, sorry, and the pearls that Sharon wore at her wedding. Then there was the blue book, the descriptions inside explaining the importance of hand washing and sterilization and propriety. Images of little glass bottles and long thin needles boasted the best of healthcare advancement. There was one section dedicated entirely to the correct way to make a bed, with two flat sheets, mitered corners, and the opening of the pillowcase away from the door. It was followed by an incredibly short section outlining the symptoms of polio. And that's as far as I'm <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I think the second long distance record here is from High River. And uh, Lorraine Andrews has written a wonderful book about ranching, which I think is one of the best things we can write about in Alberta. So, <laughs> um, so my book is called uh, Ranching Under the Arch, Stories from the Southern Alberta Rangelands. And I think we all know what the reference to the arch is. Anybody who lives in this country knows it's a Chinook arch. Um, so I'll, I'll just read you a summary of, of what's on the, on the flyleaf. It says, in the 1880s, a group of fledgling cattle ranchers descended on the plains of southern Alberta. They were drawn by the promise of the West, where the grass seemed virtually endless, and they could ranch under the arch of the Blessed Chinook. The wondrously warm Pacific wind that conveniently swooped down the eastern slopes of the Rockies to melt the winter snows and clear the land for year-round grazing. But it was not easy. The grand schemes and wild optimism of that early era were soon tempered by the brutal reality of a frontier land where the Chinook did not always blow when it was needed and adaptation was the name of the game. Real people with real dreams came to ranch under the arch in the path of the fickle Chinook. They put down roots as deep and resilient as the tough fescue grass that covered the rangelands. Along the way, they grew to love their land and their place in it. Um, they had a nurturing, there was no plunder and run mentality here, but a nurturing of their precious resources of grass and water. Now into their third and fourth generations, they have become some of our strongest advocates for the concepts of stewardship and conservation. So my book is a tale of survival, perseverance and prosperity in the face of struggle, loss and loneliness and I following several ranches still in operation that have roots during dating to the late 19th century, recounting the culture that developed around this demanding vocation on this unique land. Thank you, Lorraine. All right. I'm feeling All the more time, time for you. Uh, <laughs> next is uh, Harry Hanlon, last but not least, and I think he's got a fascinating book here, so. Right up to your yes. mouth and push the button. Oh, you know how to run a microphone. <laughs> Hi, folks. I'm uh, just promoting my book that I wrote over the years while I was flying through the Canadian Arctic and Antarctica and just a lot of other places also. I think I'll just read the back panel for it. It's pretty self-explanatory. 35 years of bush-type flying in some of the harshest conditions in the world have resulted in many memorable experiences that I'd like to share. A lot of my early flying was along the west coast of British Columbia and the Canadian Arctic between Yellowknife and the northern coast. Flying a single otter out of Norman Wells in the Northwest Territories added hundreds of hours of time to my logbook. I also accumulated many hours on skis, 
high flotation tires and floats in the high Arctic islands and northern Greenland. These stories and poems were written over many years while I was flying in the Canadian Arctic, the Antarctic, South America, and many other parts of the world. There are stories of adventure, humor, and tragedy, tales of landing on grassy jungle strips, snow, glaciers, ice rivers, lakes, and some of the busiest airports in the world. These stories are not just about the flying, they involve the people that I've flown with and flown for, and many others who are part of the aviation industry. I've tried to avoid concentrating too much on the difficulties and dangers involved in this type of flying. While there was no shortage of adventures, there were also many wonderful and fun times that I've tried to make justice to. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because a lot of my old pilot friends are retiring and dying off, and when they go, all their stories go with them. So I wanted to have some of these out there, and uh, a lot of my other pilots that are still living are really happy that I wrote this book. It brings back lots of memories for them also. That's it. All right. Thanks. Well, thank you, everybody, for participation in this uh, experiment. And my recording machine tells me we got all this in one take. And I am not looking forward to editing it next week. But at any rate, um, thank you for, uh, for anybody shopping here. Please continue to mingle with and chat with the authors. We have a few more minutes left. And uh, for the authors, please continue to buy each other's books. And uh, welcome, and thank you for participating in Pincher Creek's probably biggest ever literary event. So that's it, everyone. Just wanted to jump back in here to let you know. If you want to know more about uh, who some of these authors were, uh, probably the best place to, uh, to pop in is at our Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village Facebook page, where the uh, preceding posts uh, leading up to this event all uh, had individual postings, as it were, um, detailing um, who some of the authors were and what some of the titles are that uh, are in print under their names. And these titles are all available at any time in the country store at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village in downtown Pincher Creek, 1037 McLaughlin Drive. And uh, if you get in here uh, around the Christmas time, there might even be some signed copies left over from the event. So that's be a nice little bit of a bonus. And uh, being in this technological age, most of these authors do have some form of online presence, be it either on social media or their own web pages and, um, and that sort of thing. So uh, there is also, I refer you to the podcast of November 15th on this feed, the uh, Kootenai Brown Now, where I did... Uh, introduced you to some of these people and uh, now that you can put some voices next to the faces and the identities so happy reading everyone and um, please enjoy your uh, the upcoming holiday seasons <laughs>